you know, the grenades of prophetic talk. Um, I was thinking this morning, you know, Jesus says, um, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And yesterday we heard from a lot of your colleagues that one of the biggest challenges they face is the rat race of life, vocation, and money out here. And the difficulty is that the words of Jesus don't really give much compassion to that kind of lifestyle. <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, I know you live in Houston and you commute an hour and a half or two hours and I know that all your kids want to be in every activity in your neighborhood and I know that you want to be safe and I know that you want to have enough food and clothing and I know you have these dreams of your children going to college. Jesus doesn't broke any of that. So one of the difficulties you have, and I think all over America in these kinds of populations, is that the lifestyle that Jesus calls people to is upside down to everything they're living. And it's hard. And, and so you have to ask the question, well, what if they don't want to? Well, then you have to sort of say, well, hmm, if a person knows that that's what Jesus is saying, but refuses to deal with that, like, whoa, now I got a theological problem. <laughs> Do they actually know Jesus? But even if they know Jesus and say, yes, I am willing to follow him, they're going to have a lifetime of tough decisions. Yeah? And that is your difficulty to never let the prophetic edge of the tough decisions go away. If you and I try to make it easier for them to follow Jesus, we're not doing what God's asked us to do. And that is your challenge, and I realize that. There'll be no easy answers that, in fact, as you, as you say to people non-negotiably, here's what Jesus says. Now, I'm not saying to you tomorrow you give it all up, you sell it all, you find a new house. That's not what, I, that's not what Jesus says. But if you're not even willing to get on the path of what it takes, and you may find a lot of your people don't want to do that. So you have a unique challenge that we don't face around the world. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Pray that you anoint my words. Help me say what I need to say. Say the things that you want me to say and to uh, glorify you in your word and in your church in this generation that we occupy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been my privilege uh, in my 69 years to be in a lot of places of the earth. And um, the drag on that is that you travel a lot, and I am admittedly tired of traveling. There's enough millions of miles on this body, I don't care if I ever see another airplane. But the good side of it is that it has allowed me to live in a generation of the highest receptivity that the world has ever seen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The numbers of followers of Jesus Christ are off the chart. And you realize, as a missiologist, I have read bi the biographies and the lives and the desires and the events that we have celebrated in the modern missionary movement for the last two to three hundred years. And, and, and I read the life of men and women who are always asking the question, how do we finish the task? What do we do? But when you look back in, 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 in perspective on that, you realize they were asking a question that, that realistically, that statistically, that was manpower uh, sense, was impossible to be answered in their day. 
A handful of people blow into a nation in Africa and they're the first ones to get there and they want to see the gospel touch every man, woman, and child in Mali or, or Zaire or South Africa. And, and, and in point of fact, there aren't enough of them to be able to do that in a short period of time. Unless God does some supernatural miracle and people just flock to them and they come and bow down and, and all of a sudden there's this huge response, they're going to spend their life seeding the gospel not harvesting the gospel. And when I first went to the mission field in 1973, that's really the generation I went out under into Latin America. We want to see great harvest, but we now know after hundreds of years of watching this through others, mm, we're still seeding. We're still seeding. We're still seeding. And now people are coming to know Christ, and, but they're not big numbers, and, and the church is multiplying, but not easily, and the church has some influence, but not much, and it really is more about sacrifice and difficulty. But, but everybody has the same desire. How do we finish the task? And then I think unknown, really, I have to say, as I read most of my colleagues who are now in heaven, unknown to most of us is that God the Spirit was about to do something dramatic in this earth. In the 70s, in Latin America, it started to percolate, and people could begin to feel it a little bit. But they didn't, they didn't, is this really, is, 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 is this the moment? Is something dramatic going to happen? And, and, uh, and then in the 80s, it became clear that, yeah, the Spirit of God was beginning to move across Latin America in ways, pan Latin America that we had dreamed about but not ever experienced. We'd seen a little bit of it in Brazil and a little bit of it in Chile, but not pan Latin America. And then by the 90s and the 2000s, it became clear that multiple tens of millions of people in Latin America had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And churches had just multiplied off the chart. And nothing would stop the Spirit of God, not even governments of oppression. God would just multiply. And I won't tell you the story of Cuba now, but I am, I am convinced that God used alien forces, antagonistic forces, in Cuba to grow the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can do those things, and he did it. And so we live in that moment of tremendous receptivity. But I, as I come back to America, I have to tell you, every time I come back, I'm frustrated. I come back and I see that if, if we talk about the idea that um, the gospel becomes accessible to every man, woman, and child, and then the end comes. Now, if that's exactly what Jesus intended in Matthew 25, then I have to say to you as a student of the world, there's nothing left. I would have to say that knowing that the Spirit of God is always operative and God is active in his world and he can reach across thousands of miles to bring somebody to faith, he doesn't have to do that anymore. I can think of no population of people that are not realistically close to another body of Christians who are living their faith and could take responsibility to see them do what God wants to do. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, 
a bottle that's half empty anymore. It was when I started. We all thought, at best, we're, we're half full. That's just not true anymore. It's not half it's It's as full as God maybe wants it to make. So I guess from a human point of view, and that doesn't really matter, does it? Jesus could come today, and I would have no argument with Jesus that everybody in the earth had had a realistic opportunity to understand that in God there was an eternal message, that in Jesus Christ that he was providing what was needed. So I don't know what to do with this. Give me a minute. Maybe we'll have to start over, huh? This is not staying here, so I don't have it on right. Is it bothering you? It was bothering me. It's popping off. I don't know if we start over or edit. Okay. So we live in this moment in time when... Jesus could come any moment because this gospel preached to the nations, it's happened. And that is distinct to the life of people that went on before me, but I've lived in that moment. But when I return to America, I'm I'm, I'm always frustrated. When when I I look at how churches organize themselves, when I look at the messages that they talk about when I go into their midst, when I look at the, uh, the major themes that run through their convictions, When I look at the money we spend on property, I wonder, have we lost perspective on life? And and, and, and I'm specifically referring to two things. Number one, eternal perspective. You know, God gives us the privilege to live life. Marriage, family, jobs, houses, vacations, food. Those are all the things that God privileges us to experience as human beings living on this earth. But from the eternal point of view, that's, what not, that's not what life is all about. It's not about you and I get married. That's just a gift that God gives us. It's not about that we get a good job. We, we, we create something in the image because we have the image of God. That's not what life's all about. It's not that, well, we get enough wealth to buy the house we want, and we have enough set aside, there comes a day we can can relax. Or some time during every year that we can relax. That's That's not what life's about eternally. From God's point of view, from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one thing that dominates time. That's mercy. When mercies is over, the end comes. Peter says that pretty clearly, doesn't he? You know, you know the end of the story, so what difference does it make? What story? The story of mercy. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our life is consumed with mercy, the mercy of the message of the gospel, that God is offering reconciliation to a whole generation of rebels. Now, all of the other crucibles of life are fine, If it's not illegal, immoral, unethical, or against the Bible, you're free to go do it. But that's not why you live. And so when I come back and I see us struggling to sort of figure out what do we do in church? What do the people want? (laughs) You know, what are the most important things? I feel sometimes that we've lost the eternal perspective. 
that it's not about that building. It's not about that program. It's not about that sermon. It's, it's not about those things. Even though I also want to say none of those things are wrong or sinful, but it's not about those things. But when those things don't become dominated by the consciousness of the eternal, it's a problem. The the second area is I think we've lost perspective of the global. And I want to say this nicely. We are just a small group of people on this planet. America is less than 5% of the world's population. And if I give you 30 million Christians in America, we're, le- we're barely 1% of the Christian population of the earth. If I give you 60 million, you take your pick, we're 2%. Globally, we just don't statistically measure up to the importance that we take to ourselves in terms of how we spend God's assets. His people his money, his concerns, his gifts. They just, to me, it doesn't add up. That somewhere here we have lost perspective. When in reality, all over the earth, there's more of us. The numbers are just off the chart. And there are, in fact, even still in America, there is great opportunity. Like what gets lost sometimes in certain places, like the one we're in today, is that so much migration has happened to places like this that you have already a lot of people with some kind of God consciousness who arrive here from somewhere else and they're looking for a place. And so we look at these kinds of boom cities and we say, wow, look at that church, it's growing, this is big, look at that, look at how many people. And we begin to say, well, well, they're doing something super. And maybe they are doing something significant and super. But in point of fact, in most of these boom towns, it's just been there in the right place at the right time with a whole bunch of people who moved from somewhere else who were looking to go to some church. And you take that away, and they may not be as special in another place as they perceive themselves, or we perceive them to be in this place. And in fact, then we get lost in it. Growth is all about adding people. When it, from God's eternal point of view, it has nothing to do with that. Growth is all about the refraction of the message of Jesus Christ to the people who belong to him in a context in such a way that the consciousness of the gospel becomes vibrantly alive for every man, woman, and child. And then they have a chance to respond to the call of God, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the availability of understanding of the gospel message. I still believe in America... There's a lot of people to be one to the gospel, but it'll never be easy. I think of some of my friends in one city, which is very religious. So that's, that's a context. It's very religious. And so now you've got to define what you mean, right? They're seeing 13% average annual growth rate of conversion. That's I'm, In America, where the average church wins one person per year, that's really doing well. You say, well, how are they doing that? We're going to see in a few minutes. They're doing that because 
They've convinced their people that the gospel message they've received is the dominating force to their vocabulary, and everywhere they go, they talk about the gospel. So their people share their faith three to 4,000 times a year. Something's going to happen. Up in the Northeast, where the numbers are abysmal, where we could say there used to be a lot of churches that look like the churches in this city today, <laughs> big and full and, and vibrant and full of happy people. They used to have a lot of those. They're empty now. We're looking at 1% and 2 and 3% Christianity. But there's an implosion of Catholic experience in the Northeast. And so we've got partners up there showing 25% average annual growth rate. They wouldn't even think about transferring a church to an existence. It won't happen. There's not enough critical mass to transfer a bunch of people into a new church. You don't win them, you don't grow. So there are more of us, and I want to say to you, there's more opportunity. The problem is in places where boomtown is, you have to work harder at it. Because without face-to-face encounter, do people really come to faith? Now, there are a few people that come to faith in an event, but most people are documented as coming to faith that they had a face-to-face encounter with another believer in whom they saw the gospel, from whom they heard the gospel. I don't think that changes anywhere in the world. 70, 80, 90% of the people come to faith, come to faith because they met a Christian. So, but there are more opportunities. But our challenges in our context are serious. They're increasing. And what's happening is receptivity, genuine conversion, evangelization, intentionality, and people formation are all suspect. Are we really evangelizing? Are our people really being formed? Is there really receptivity? Or what level is that receptivity? Because those are realistic things. But in every corner of the world, I think, even in this one, God is saying to you, I'm still alive. You're not gone yet. The day of mercy is not over. You do have a responsibility for the population you live in. To be able to work in that place in such a way that whatever's left in darkness will be brought to light. However, if I can be so bold as the older man in the room, I think it starts with a heavy, heavy dose of reflection for the American church. We're too, we're too prone to easy answers. The new seminar gives the, the new three points and we go try it and it doesn't really work, but we'll look for the next one. We want easy answers. And by that, I think what what I'm saying is we want somebody to tell us in the next year how we add 500 new people or 50 new people. And I think in our context today, that's not going to happen unless you run the risk of simply entertaining them. Giving them what their flesh really wants and hoping that someday you can convert it to a religious objective. Now, it doesn't happen. It is a deceitful concept 
You're easily deceived in it, but I think sometimes that's what we want. And I think given the seriousness of where we are, there's not going to be any easy answers, but there are answers. And having now worked emphatically in this with 15 to 20 years, we can now show you cities in America where there is measurability of, and can I be so bold to say, evangelization and sanctification or transformation. That we can honestly say we have been able to see the marks of transformation that we want to see. But it's, it's, it's not going to be easy answers. I have a friend who said to me not too long ago, he says, I, I was with 60 pastors. His job is like me to talk with pastors. He says, I was with 60 pastors in America. And I asked them a question. How many of you have a written statement as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ for your church? 58 said no, only two said yes. Then he said, how many of you have some way to measure whether you are accomplishing the kind of growth that God wants for his children? Zero. Well, it's easy to hit that target. And so what we do is we default to the most obvious. Do they come? How many come? Do they give? And do they appear to be happy? And and so we default to very human, insufficient, inadequate answers. And then we come back, because I think the desire is really here, we come back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's all about every man, woman, and child. Yes, I'm in. That's my heart. That's why I got into ministry. This is where I want to be. And now I've been in it 20 years, and I'm not really happy with this. No, I want to see transformation in God's people. Yes, I want to see evangelization. Yes, it is about lostness. Yes, it is about light invading darkness in such a way that the traumatic message of a resurrected Jesus takes root in people and marriages and families and cities. But our default measurement is inadequate. We're never going to get to every man, woman, and child if we stop at asking the question, how many are there? Are they happy? And are they giving? We have to get much deeper. And I think that's what the journey is all about, and that's why it's a reflection. The difficulty with reflection, it's a personal attack, isn't it? Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying that that I have failed? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying don't allow yourself to be deceived. Be bold enough in the presence of God to ask the question for God wants. And if you have not adequately done as a leadership team what God wants at the moment with these people, be willing to say, whoa. Don't be blinded. And then repent and say, God, we know we're inadequate. We want it to be different. So, Lord, show us the steps of reformation, because that's the third point. I am a convinced voice that this is a day of reformation. You say, well, who do you think you are? Well, I don't know. I mean, the early reformers, they started the reformation 1,500 years after there was 
the presence of Jesus. So 1,500 years later, they can question soteriology. They can question a priesthood. They can question the very nature of the church. Surely can't we, in reflection, begin to say maybe we have inadequate ideas, theological ideas, biblically funded ideas, fundamental ideas about what church really is? But my fear is we default to how to do church. When God wants to ask the question, what is church? And begin to reform how we do it based upon what it is, rather than doing it based upon what sociology says draws people. I think we're in dramatic need for a reformation of leadership. These are two areas that I can't see that in 2,000 years have really been reformed. Now, I'm not alone. Every time I go back and pick up a book from somebody who's dead or I go, have to go back and find a, a library source for a quote that I've made, I'm astounded to say, whoa, I'm not the first one. That guy was agitated. That person was agitated. She was agitated. We're not the first of a generation to say, is this correct? We're a long line of people, but we happen to be a group of people in a Western world that are in desperate need to answer the question, or we will be overwhelmed by darkness. What is church? Not how do you do church. What is leadership? Not how do you do leadership. And so my, the new edit on the Alone at the Top book, which is available at scpglobal.org, with other assets that you can find to help it define a little bit better what I'm saying here. The sub, I decided to start to say it out loud, out loud, and I wrote it up there as the subplot. Is our idea of pastor really biblical? Well, the fact that I'm answering it, asking it means that the answer is no, it's not. And yet that is our primary thought in America. I'm pastor. Well, we've morphed that, you know. It used to be pastor, then it was senior pastor. Now, I don't know why we've done it. Now it's lead pastor. Now, where all these come from, I have no idea. Because the concept is really not biblical. You say, well, you're saying all those other generations were wrong? Well, what were the reformers saying 1,500 years into it all? They were saying, yeah, they were wrong. Now, they're not saying that they are sinfully wrong, they're not saying that they are unsaved wrong. They're just simply saying they haven't thought through it enough, and it's time for us to think through it. Most of the major definitions about God, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the God-manness, those weren't solved until two and three and four hundred years after Jesus left. So the church is constantly trying to understand what have we believed? And the pressures of society sometimes distort our thinking in such a way that even the very idea of gospel can get out of focus. I have grown up in a generation where the gospel is, you don't want to go to hell and you want to go to heaven. We're in a generation where the gospel is all about feeling good, being happy, it'll heal you, you'll be great because of it. But what do you say to all the people around the world who are dying because of their faith? Are they going to feel good about their faith, humanly speaking, because they have to die for it? So the very nature that somehow human happiness is connected to, to the idea of the gospel is a distortion of the gospel. Or that if you accept the gospel, look at every penny you need, God will provide it even more. You know, it'll be your best day ever. Is that the gospel? That's not what the Bible says. 
And so the pressures of society sometimes erode the, the very functions, the very deepest ideas about the gospel. And we need to be reformed. And so that's where I am. I think we're, we're in a day of reformation when the very fundamentals of some of the things that we believe need to be questioned. We need to stop asking the question, how do you do church? I'd like to get rid of that question completely. If I could get every pastor and leader in America to ask the question, what is church? I think we could get at some different answers. But as long as we keep asking the question, what is church? We'll keep asking the question, what do people want? And that is the wrong place to start with a body that's on earth headed to eternity. So as you begin to experience with us this idea of what is church, what is leadership, what is the gospel now, how do I put that to walk in the place where God's put me? There's three convictions that for us are non-negotiable. They're large, they're big ideas that we try to unpackage. And we think that they begin to deal with the concepts of reformation of church leadership, gospel, and even strategy. Number one is this, that as we read Scripture, we are convinced that whatever God's going to do in your city, your neighborhood, your town, He's going to do through all of Christ's people. That's non-negotiable. Anytime we create a strategy that does not mobilize all of God's people, we are already out of step with God. The very... The very nature of his design is that he has intended himself to be represented in every one of his children. It's all diverse. It's all different. It's all at different levels and different places. But the very nature of the expression of the glory and the assets of God in the world are intended from Genesis in the beginning to be refracted through every person who has come to faith. So whenever we talk about church, our first question is going to be, with what percent of people doing nothing with their faith will you be satisfied? And the biblical answer is zero. The pragmatic answer, yeah, but you don't know my people. You don't know my context. You don't know how difficult it is. You don't know how busy our people are. You don't understand that the men and the women, they get up at 5 a.m. and they, they travel for an hour and a half, and then they get home an hour and a half later. You know, you, don't, you just don't understand. It's five days a week. You don't understand what it costs to live in the side. You don't understand. And listen, I probably don't understand all that, but I do understand the, word, the words of Scripture. And if you belong to Jesus, you're not left out. You are by nature in reconciliation to him, in representation of him, and in relationship with him. Every man, woman, a child. And that's the only way this city is going to be reached. Is when a growing consciousness in the people of God, because of the leadership of the, of, of the people in the church of God, began to grow their understanding that they are an important and vital and strategic and necessary peace to what God wants to do. It doesn't matter how big their microcosm is. It can be the most apparently irrelevant small microcosm that humanity thinks exists, but they are a refraction to that place of the goodness, the graciousness, and the glory of God. So when we talk about strategies, we're going to ask you the question, how are you doing? Now, we're going to get you some other questions to ask below that. But 
Whatever God does, he's going to do to all of Christ's people. And any other idea of doing church is inadequate. Second, whatever God's going to do in the world through all of Christ's people, he's going to do through people like you who take it as their first responsibility to nurture activity and faith in them and not just do your own thing. The whole responsibility of leadership is to empower faith and action in God's people. We are midwives. That's the, we're going to get into one chapter on leadership, but that's the distinct thing here. It's upside down. Well, lead. Get out of the way or, or lead. That's not, that's not the model of Jesus. We're not over. We're not in front of. We're not behind. We're in the midst of. And we are instilling in them the faith to believe God, the faith to act on God's behalf. And so whatever God's going to do through all of his Christ people is when leadership picks up the idea that what people do is more important than what I do. And if what I do doesn't provoke what people should be doing, then maybe I'm not doing the right things. If you find yourself stuck in a position of managing the church and administrating the therapeutic, then you're probably way out of the, the boundaries of biblical leadership. The third is that whatever God's going to do in the world through all of Christ's people, he does primarily through a decentralized structure. I, I have no problems with churches of three, four, five, eight, ten thousand. But in my mind, the bigger you are, the more you have the responsibility to give it all away. You are an asset to something that God wants to do in a bigger geography, and he's given you people and money, and what you ought to be known for is giving it away. I'd like to see every big church in America with this kind of asset base be, by, in its own mind, be giving 50 to 75% of their assets away. The money, the people, the opportunity. Because they are an asset base for something bigger. But the average church in America is only about 100 to 150 people. And those churches need to learn to decentralize of life. Even the big churches. I was thinking about this this morning. If the underbelly of every church is not significantly scattered throughout decentralized forms, then what you want people to believe is probably never going to be achievable. Because most of life is brought to faith and nurtured in faith, face to face. So when churches don't create face-to-face -face opportunities of no more than 12, nothing less than two, they're probably deluding themselves into believing that somehow something significant is happening. Change doesn't happen without face-to-face. -face. The change of salvation, we already know, it's relational. The chains of transformation, we call that discipleship, it's face-to-face. It's relational. And that demands a decentralized form. We'll talk later more about that. I don't care what kind of decentralized it form. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of content to that. But basically, we need to buy the fact that you may gather 100, 200, 500, 8,000, 8, whatever it is, the underbelly better be reflected in a large decentralization of face-to-face -face opportunities between people, or you will find that either you del are deluded in what they are doing and or they are not doing what they should be doing, and you know it, but you don't want to confront them. So we have an opportunity, I think, still in this country. 
But it's not going to be an easy course. The average church just doesn't have a bazillion assets. It's not got a, a bazillion people. The average church in America, I think still 80 to 90 percent, are small churches. But small or big, it doesn't matter. God is still calling into question what we think about ourselves. And he's asking us to reflect in such a way that we ask honest questions. Are we really doing what Scripture wants us to do with Christ's people? But if we can start to answer those questions, and I have hope because there are men around America that I am connected to. I just got an email today from one. Tremendous report of what God is doing. Not in the chant of every man, woman, and child, but the visceral, the ground level, the street level of every man, woman, and child, that we still have great opportunity to define the most important things about God and his intervention on this planet. And then you start to say to yourself, imagine, imagine what would happen in your neighborhood. Let's don't go any further than that. Your neighborhood, if a majority of your people spent at least 15 to 30 minutes every day listening to God and his word. We're going to get back around to that one. That starts to tell you what we're measuring. Are God's people really talking to God? Are they accessing the only word he has? The only language the Holy Spirit speaks is his scripture. Are they accessing it? Now, we, we know globally that they're not. It is the number one struggle that we people called Protestants have, actually practicing the priesthood that we say we believe. A majority of Christians do not spend any time in God's word. And yet it is the great conscience builder, is it not? What keeps marriages together? God's word used by God's spirit. Just keep speaking a, a redemptive conscience. It's the, it's the still, quiet voice of the Holy Spirit living in the new man that is a new woman who is constantly rebuking what's left of the flesh. And that rebuke only comes through Scripture. That encouragement comes through Scripture. That enlightenment comes through Scripture. That next step comes from Scripture. It's tethered to Scripture. It's bounded by Scripture. It lives in the life of Scripture. And that's why we believe Scripture's God-breathed. It's his provision. Imagine what would happen in your church if every one of your people actually spent 15 minutes a day with God in his word. You'd have a different church. Imagine what would happen if a majority of your people actually understood their gifts and used them in the marketplace 24 hours a day, seven days a week, everywhere they went. They realized that the gifts weren't for maintaining your program. We're not looking for people to occupy our program. We're looking to mobilize the people that God has already gifted to be engaged in their small place of the purpose, which goes on everywhere God takes them. Imagine what would happen. Imagine what would happen if you could get out of the business of being on all the committees, trying to manage the budget, inspire the staff, prepare all the sermons, and you could simply be 
a midwife of faith and activity to the people. A true facilitator of people who were growing in their understanding of faith and living distinctive, God-provided opportunities of faith everywhere they went. Imagine. Imagine what would happen if in this city, the 7 million people of which, I don't know, 17% go to church on Sunday. Let's say there's 25% of them who really are Christian. Let's say 75% of them are not really followers of Jesus Christ. And maybe those numbers are all messed up. Maybe it's really less. Most places around the world, we find two things. Number one, there's less people who really go to church than we think. In most places in America, it's less than 10% on a Sunday. And we are discovering that the evangelical church is more nominalized than we want to admit. Maybe as much in some churches as 60 to 70% of people who, if you ask biblical questions, are not really followers of Jesus Christ. Now, that varies wherever you go. But imagine what would happen if every man, woman, and child in Houston, in this city, had an opportunity to come into encounter with the faith of, 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 of Jesus Christ through the incarnation of his life in people without them having to go anywhere. We will find them. Where? Right where they are. They don't have to come to our building. They don't have to join our program. They don't have to buy our, our DVDs. Through our people, we will find them. Imagine. Father, we thank you for this moment of opening and just pray your blessing upon it, that you would use it in the way that you want to use it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, I tell you what, we decided to do some questioning, so I'll give you five or ten minutes if you want anything you want to tease out in that. I don't know what to do with this. I mean, it's on now, but did I mess it up or can we edit it all right? It may look a little kinky somewhere, but whatever. Huh? All right. Strange. Yeah. Mitch. Yep. 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 It's potentially done. It's obviously not done because Jesus hasn't come. But I'm saying to you, if he came today, I personally, it's irrelevant what God thinks of my attitude, but I personally would say, nope, God's done everything he needed to do. You start thinking about those, those populations that, that are unreached, they are, they are crucible and surrounded by significant populations of people who are reached. So we're not in a place where somebody has to get on a plane in Britain and fly all the way to some place in Africa and they're the first person in the place and nobody's ever brought the gospel. That doesn't exist anymore because there are large populations. There's three billion confessing Christians in the world nearly. Now, I'm not saying they're all truly believers. They're not all true believers here either. But there's 3 billion confessing Christians. So even if you take, even if you take a 20, 10 or 20% population of that, that's a lot of people. And, and those populations are spread all over the world. They're not just in one place. Um, up until about 1950, we would have said that the majority of Christian expression was Western. 
at least till the turn of the century, you know, the 18th, and 1910 or so is what Lateratz says. But by 1950, we could see that that had changed, that the gospel was now really global and universal. It was everywhere. By the year 2000, it is in every nook and cranny, every geographical place. And that's why you heard me say yesterday, I didn't say it here today, I think the only pre-Christian continent on earth is Asia. And not even all of Asia is pre-Christian. Now you say, what do you mean by post-Christian? Well, we've become conditioned to think that post-Christian is just philosophical, but it's also uh, chronological. So I remember meeting with, uh, you weren't with me, but we were in Africa, we were in Kenya, uh, and we were sitting there with a, with a group of Kenyans. They were talking to us about coming back in and, and being a part of getting them mobilized to reach their whole nation. Um, and I was sitting there and saying to them, you know, guys, I'm, I'm not really sure that I'm comfortable that you need us because you have a long history of Christianity here, and you've become entrenched in some postmodern concepts chronologically. A young man was there. He said, you know, you know uh, Pastor, you, you know, you're right. I am the 15th generation of Christians in my family. And that's true all over Africa. There are some places in Africa that were at one point 40, 50, 60% Christian. They're not today because that's come and gone. Yeah, you got parts of, Af of, Latin, of um, India where you go down south. The gospel's been there 2,000 years. You've got some cities that have had the gospel, and they've had huge numbers. And now they've, they've gotten into the postmodern funk. That is, they are post-Christianity. They understand it. They're, you know, they're, they're children or their children's children. They talk about it. They dress up. They go to church. But you ask biblical questions, there's nothing there. So, I mean... Every continent on earth, except for, I think, Asia, is, is post-Christian. Post we know Europe is post-Christian. Even Latin America. I mean, you go to some place in Latin America where the numbers have been off the chart of 30, 40, 50, 60 percent. I do believe when we talk about Cuba, I remember I've asked questions for years. The last time I was there, I started asking a lot of questions about, you know, how many people do you think there are who've never heard the gospel in Cuba? They said, Nobody. And I asked other questions like that. I think what's happened in Cuba is that we are on the third evangelization of that country. And that's just since 19, about 1989. Because in 1999, when things dramatically changed and receptivity came, everybody got active and a lot of people became followers of Christ. And then somewhere toward the year 2000, a younger generation did it again. And now there's a younger generation that is doing it. And so you say, has it, man, it's been evangelized. I, I think it would be fair to say that in Cuba, there's not a block that doesn't have a Christian on it. That's how pervasive they've been. So that when I look at the world, that's all I'm saying, that you have these pockets of lostness, but they are close to huge numbers of Christians, sometimes right in their own country, sometimes right next to them. So the idea that we've had, we got to go do something, why in the world would I get on an airplane and fly 8,000 miles when God somebody has somebody, a population of people 50 miles away? It's their job. And we need to begin to cooperate in that thing. That's all I'm saying, Mitch. Okay? And that's a new reality. 